We'll take it. It started as a simple crime, the candy snatchers. For them, it was a new beginning. For her, it was the beginning of the end. Three losers who wanted to lead the good life. The candy snatchers. They'd do anything to get there. Candy snatchers. They were rough on candy. They were rougher on themselves. Get out of my way! Get out of my way! Get out of my way! Snatchers. They were after a fortune in diamonds. We cut off her ear. And they sent her father a piece of candy in a box. Oh my God, no! The candy snatchers. They did things they couldn't even believe themselves. That is sick. That is really sick. She is old enough to be your mother. Do you know these are? The candy snatchers, bizarre, incredible, almost unbelievable. Ah! The candy snatchers, this is the one they're talking about. Welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and with me also are... Bobby Hazard. And... John Hudson. Which means you people are in for trouble. Yes, indeed. <laughs> this episode, we're going to be covering a film from 1973, described best as an American exploitation crime film, The Candy Snatchers. Now, if you have never seen this film... We're going to end up spoiling this, I just want you to know, because I just don't find... I can't really imagine a way of talking about this film without really grinding the salt into the wound by way of talking about the ending. So, keep that in mind. Uh, if you want to see this film, there will come a point where we will say, hey, by the way, past here, you probably want to switch this off if you don't want to know exactly how things play out. We will remember to give you some kind of fair warning, because... This may be, for a lot of people, a one-time watch. Uh, famously, that kind of movie is... Uh, huh. they, were, they made a lot of them in the 1970s. Where you watch it one time and you really feel like, one, I need a shower, and two, I'm never going to watch this again. Well, those people are wrong. I mean, <laughs> they can shower if they want. I'm not going to stop them there. But... <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you're, <laughs> glad you're willing to allow people to, to have a shower. I'm pro-shower. You're pro-shower. Well, the the thing is, this is, uh, this is a film that was chosen for us this time out by Mr. Hudson. Um, You're welcome. Mr. Hudson, just out of curiosity, why did you want to cover this particular movie? I actually genuinely think this is a really good movie that not enough people know about. Okay. So I'm hoping that um, this might spread the gospel of Candy Snatchers a little bit more. And there's a beautiful version of it that's out now from Vinegar Syndrome, so it's never been easier to see. True, true. When did you first see this movie? There, there are stories to tell here, I'm sure. Well, I 
would love to be one of those people that says, well, I saw it back in VHS, or I saw it, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, I saw it, though, when it came out. I'd read about it and heard about it, you know, in, like, psychotronic circles. Right. But when it was released on DVD originally in, I guess, 2004-ish, somewhere in there, whenever the first, whenever the yeah, DVD positive, came out. Yeah. I can't remember the exact year, but that's when I saw it. Was when it was released on DVD. Okay, same for me. I, I, I rented it through the mail from Netflix back when Netflix did such things, and uh, that's how I first saw it. Probably about you know fifteen plus years ago. How about you? Well, I have a very fond memory of this because uh, I went to a double feature at the original Alamo Draft House. Oh yes. Where the gentleman whose name I forgot to write down uh, that wrote Sleazeway Express was hosting a double bill of exploitation films. One was uh, Candy Snatchers, and the second film was Kidnap Co-Ed. And, uh, Those go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Yes, they do. It was a Sunday night that I actually took off for because I was very excited about it. I was like, oh, because you know, we've discussed this before. I always used to be a Weird Wednesday regular. I was, I've always been in exploitation films and horror movies and stuff like that. So I was like, this is going to be great. Taking a day off so I can go to this. 20 people there. Very disappointing. Yeah, yeah. There should be a larger crowd. And uh, I accidentally uh, dissed the guy when I bought some books from him. <laughs> oh, whoa, that was unnecessary. What happened? I, I, well, I, I didn't mean to do it. It just wasn't that important to me at the time. Oh. And it also sucks because the gentleman is now dead. Um, once again, I... He died him. of a broken heart after yeah. you. <laughs> you killed him. He used to do a couple different zines, which uh, have disappeared when Cult Fiction Underground, because I donated it to him. But uh, I bought a couple of those uh, zines. And he's like, uh, you want me to autograph those for you? I went, no, that's all right. <laughs> and I kind of thought about it for a fact. I'm like, oh, that was a dick move. <laughs> but uh, the guy like hosted both movies and was talking about like what he had to do to go to like 42nd Street and watch movies and you know, things he had to deal with. And it was a very fascinating night, which I'm really surprised that nobody was at because, I mean, it was just something I had to go to. Yeah, of course. Um uh, Sleazeway Express, if it's still in print, is a highly recommended book by me. Well, I still have it to mm-hmm. this day. Did not get lost in the flood in my basement, thankfully. I was looking for it earlier because I had forgotten the name of the book, and I was trying to explain <laughs> it to you. And I was like, please don't let it be one of the books that got lost. And it was not. So, Good, good, good. But yeah, uh, it's not a feel-good movie, but I definitely <laughs> love this movie. No, it is not a feel-good movie, and that's probably what I should have led with to give, uh, to give listeners uh, uh, some kind of basis for which to understand why I'm giving the caveat of might be a one-time watch. So And some people, there might be a couple things that might trigger you in this. <laughs> to say the least. To say the least. Bunch of daffodils. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's dive right into the fact that uh, this film was kind of unofficially inspired by a real-life kidnapping. Not that we want to go too deeply into that, because... This is not a true crime podcast, and I really have no interest in wallowing in the misery, the real-life misery of uh, actual people, but uh, Barbara Jane Mackle was uh, kidnapped. Was it the late 60s? Late 60s? When was that exactly? December 17th, 1968. Going to tell you people right now, I was a little lazy on this. I just got it straight from Wikipedia. And go, go. But whatever. On December 17th, 1968, Mackle... Then a 20-year-old Emory University student was staying at the Redway Inn in Decatur, Georgia, with her mother. Mackle was sick with a Hong Kong flu. Her mother had driven to the Atlanta area to take care of her daughter and then drive her, drive her back to the family home in Coral Gables, Florida, for the Christmas break. A stranger, Gary Stephen Christ, knocked on a door claiming to be with the police and wearing a policeman's cap. 
told Mackle that Stuart Hunt Woodward had been in a traffic accident. Woodward, whom Mackle was later married, is usually described as Mackle's boyfriend or fiance, but in Mackle's written account, she calls him a good friend. Once inside, Chris and his accomplice, Ruth Eisman Shear, disguised as a man, chloroform-bound and gagged Mackle's mother and forced Barbara Jane Mackle at gunpoint into the back of their waiting car, informing her that she's being kidnapped. They drove her to a remote pine stand off South Berkeley Lake Road in Gwinnett County near Duluth and buried Mackle in a shallow trench inside a fiberglass reinforced box. The box was outfitted with an air pump, a battery-powered lamp, water laced with sedatives, and food. Two plastic pipes provided Mackle with air outside. Kristen Eisman Shear demanded a $500,000 ransom from Mackle's father, Robert Mackle, a wealthy Florida land developer. The first attempt at a ransom drop was disrupted when, the two poli- when two policemen drove by. The kidnappers fled on foot and the FBI found their car abandoned. Inside the car, FBI found photograph- photographs of a man with a policeman's hat and the car registration in the name of George Deacon. The second ransom drop was successful, but there was no word from kidnappers. The FBI was able to trace Deacon to the University of Miami, where they realized he built ventilated boxes for a living. Deacon's boss provided the name of Ruth Eisman Shear, who also worked at the university, as someone Deacon spent time with. The FBI was contacted by a local man in Georgia claiming he had bought a small, small trailer from a man and found some odd paperwork inside. The FBI discovered letters addressed to a George Deacon and Gary Christ, an escapee from a California prison since 1966. And when the FBI compared the prints found in the car to the ones found in Chris's file, they realized Deacon was actually Christ. On December 20th, Chris called and gave a switchboard operator at the FBI vague directions to Mackle's burial place. The FBI set up their base in Lawrenceville, which is near Stone Mountain, and more than 100 agents spread out through the area and attempted to find her, digging the ground with their hands and anything they could find to use. Mackle was found and rescued, suffering from dehydration, but otherwise unharmed. She has spent more than three days buried underground. Jeez. Mackle was asked how she remained so positive, not only during the kidnapping, but after, when she showed no ill effects of the ordeal. She claimed she would imagine spending Christmas with her family and never doubted she would be rescued. <sighs> Woman has still will. Chris was arrested after a search that started on December 20th, 1968, and went on through half the night hiding in a Florida swamp. Eisman Shear, who became the first woman to be listed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, was arrested March 5, 1969 in Norman, Oklahoma. She had applied for a job at a hospital, and as part of the background check, a fingerprint match was found by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. She is real smart. Yeah. Eisman, you, you, don't, you don't want to try to take a job where they're... Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't do that kind of a deep check back in those days. Those are the kind of jobs where they would have to do a deep check. Eisman Shear claimed she left Miami because she and Chris became separated after a money drop and she was unable to get back to the car and thought Chris had abandoned her. She was convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison, paroled after serving four years, and deported to her native Honduras. Chris was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 1969. When he was released on parole after 10 years, Chris received a pardon to allow him to attend medical school. He practiced medicine in Indiana before his license was revoked in 2003 for lying about a disciplinary action during his residency. In March 2006, Chris was arrested on a sailboat off the coast of Alabama with 14 kilos of cocaine, reportedly worth about $1 million, and he had four illegal aliens on board. He was sentenced to five years and five months in prison and released November 2010. On August 27, 2012, in Mobile, Alabama, oh my God. U.S. District Judge Callie Virginia Grenade revoked Chris's 
supervised release for violation of probation. He had left the country without permission, sailing to Cuba and South America on a sailboat. Judge Grenade sentenced Chris to 40 months imprisonment. And that's all we know about that. <laughs> Not the brightest. Now, I will throw in that they made two TV movies based on this. Okay. The first was called The Longest Night in 1972, which I think I saw. Now, I can't swear to it, but I have a memory that has never left me when I was a kid of watching a movie on TV where this little boy, I think, was talking to someone who was buried underground and talking through a pipe. But it might not be the same thing, and this has been a long time. Yeah. They also remade it, or made another version in 1990 called 83 Hours Till Dawn. Okay. And the first movie is alluded to very quickly in Candy Snatchers, where they're saying to Tiffany oh, that's Bowling, right. they say, how did you think of this plan? And I saw it on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, if you you wouldn't even have to be aware of the TV movie to, to think, well, you know, she saw a news report. A news report, yeah, something like that. <clears throat> well, this is, uh, that's interesting. It's interesting how close they adhere to for the script of this film, they, they adhere pretty closely to some of the broader details of the story. And of course, the standout pieces that any story of this type is gonna gonna take on is gonna be A, the kidnapping, with some variation in the, the gender and the age, obviously. Yeah. 28-year-old you know, versus a teenager is a big difference, really. Plus, the detail of being buried in the ground, you know, with, you know, so that you can survive, they're not going to kill you necessarily, unless they have to end up leaving you there for a very long period of time. But those are the those are the details that will get would get worked into a story of this type. And really that whole being buried thing, that's the detail that is really the thing that's going to make it incredibly memorable. In this case, um, this being a, a feature film, um, they can go the full distance. They can go the full hard R and uh Boy, do they hear. Oh. Uh, this is... Uh, when we call this an exploitation film, it's an exploitation film in a certain number of different ways. <laughs> now, I'm not going to claim that I can crawl inside the mind of a, oh, a John Hudson. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> or, nor would you want to. No, no, I wouldn't. Hey, I'm a lovable little guy. When we you know, still remember, we're talking about this movie because of you. I just want to bring that up again. And I'll say again, I'm a lovable little guy. <laughs> um, there's a there's a phrase that often gets bandied around. I think for really superficial reasons, um, that uh, in this case I think is true. Um, there would have been a long period of time where I don't think that this film could be made today. I think things have started to change in the past ten years or so. Where I think that some of the more dark elements of storytelling have been able to creep back into a lot of different kinds of productions, uh, mainly because there's just so much being produced today. Yeah. I mean, so many streaming services, so many cable channels. If you, if you think production has fallen off just because certain types of feature films are being made, you're not paying attention to everything that comes out. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's something on a streaming service for anybody, yeah. and they're not afraid to get dark. So this, exactly. this could get made now, I think. This could get made now. I'd, I'd say this could be made any time in the past 10 years, or remade even. Mm -hmm. They could do a docudrama version of this, adhering more, even more closely to the facts that they wanted to, and go as dark as they wished. But in this case, in 1973, I'm pretty sure that the 1970s, being what it was, the nature of the story and the way it's told and the way it wraps up, 
10 years later, nobody would have made this movie. In the early 80s, nobody would have made this movie, and they certainly would not have made it with the tone that this film has made, because times had changed. Uh, it was morning in America by the 80s, and God knows we suffered for that freaking morning, let me tell you. Yeah, so, in the 70s, though, dark, dark storytelling was finally coming to the fore. The, the, the chains had come off. We had a ratings board instead of uh, the Hayes Code, and so stories like this could be told with some real brutality. And once again, I'm trying to front load words like brutality and cruelty and nastiness and downbeat endings and things of that nature so that if you've not seen this movie, you will get some kind of sense of where this thing is going. Now, let's talk about the people who uh, involved, were involved in making this, both cast and crew. First of all, that new Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray is excellent because it does have a... First of all, the movie does look fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I've only ever seen the uh, the initial DVD, and it looked good there, too. So I'm just thinking there must be good surviving elements of this, and I've got to say that Blu-ray looks fantastic. It's, yeah, and there are some really good shots in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. this movie's very well made. Yeah. And Gerton Trubo, the director, it's a shame he. this is the only movie he ever directed. Yeah, yeah, but he, he was much more of a, a screenwriter. So. Yeah, he, he wrote a lot, but this is the only time he got to direct, and it's a shame because... For a first time out, he does some really good stuff, and I would have loved to have seen him do more. I think there was a lot of potential there. Well, it was good to see in that interview him being brutally honest about his own uh, his own capabilities, where he had where his director of photography came to him and and really kind of dressed him down about certain concepts and his shot setups. Like he said, I want to introduce you to an idea. This will help you out a lot if you want to keep doing this for a living. And he said, I want to introduce you to the concept of the two shot. <laughs> Great line. <laughs> and, and, the, and the fact that this that this fellow who was a, who was a very successful screenwriter and a one-time director was willing to tell that story about himself that 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 makes me that's making me that makes me very happy to to have gotten to know a little bit about this guy because he was being honest. He's like, I didn't really know what I was doing, and luckily I hired people who were willing to tell me. It was nice that he was very honest in an interview. I I I really like that. Cause, you know, most people. Gonna blow smoke. This guy's like, eh. No, no, I didn't know what I was doing. I was getting stuff in the can, but I wasn't doing it well enough for this guy, and he was right. So, for for those of you who are wondering what else he's done, like uh, two notable films he's done is Jaws 3D. He wrote the original script yeah. and still got story credit for Jaws 3D. Yeah. And Soul Survivor. That, yeah, that was his first uh, his first credit as the TV movie Soul Survivor from the late sixties. Now, he did also direct cinematography on Meat Cleaver Massacre. <laughs> Whoa, really? Yes. And wow. he also did tons and tons of TV, like mm. Streets of San Francisco and a lot of 70s. Yeah, Adam 12, yeah, The Young of, Lawyers. Yeah. Apparently, was considered a very dependable TV script writer. And so what that tells me is, although that list of credits is very long, sometimes people get brought in to like punch up scripts or to rewrite a script and they won't necessarily get an on-screen credit. And from the look of how long he worked in television, he may have been one of those guys. Yeah, and if he got in on the like streets of San Francisco, it means he was part of that Quinn Martin yeah. television machine. So God knows how much he actually did. He was yeah. he did a lot and and quickly. Uh, I was very impressed to note that he wrote that he wrote Ants, the TV movie. A lot of TV movies he wrote, not just Soul yeah, Survivor, he did but Ants, Ants, which just came out on Blu-ray. I just got it. But when it was broadcast, which I definitely watched when it was aired the first time it was called, it happened at Lakewood Manor. Yep. He also wrote Tarantulas from the same year, another TV movie. The Deadly Cargo. The deadly, tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo. I correct. pre-ordered that Blu-ray. So <laughs> <I have it. laughs> uh, 
I, I will say that later in his life, after he kind of retired from writing uh, scripts, he he became a, he started self-publishing his own novels uh, and some nonfiction. He did a he did a romance novel that he published described as a bodice ripper called Moon Willow Rose. And uh, then a piece of nonfiction. Well, I, he did a lot of non. He did, he did a lot of research, but it turned out to be a novel about uh, American aviators in the Spanish Civil War called "Long Live Death," which was apparently quite good. And uh, from what I could tell, he was working on another novel before when he passed away. Because sadly, he did pass away just last year in 2021. Uh, but he, uh, I was I was shocked at the number of his TV movies that I've seen. I just recently saw Amazon's from 1984 because it came out on DVD, and uh, well, I just I couldn't resist. And uh, he also wrote the the Last Hard Men, the Charlton Heston movie from 1976. Mm-hmm. And the Savage Bees from '76. And here's the terrible thing: I thought I'd seen the Savage Bees. Turns out, Savage Bees is a TV movie, and there are too many damn bee movies that were produced in the '70s. <laughs> well, I've got them mixed up. The Deadly Bees. Deadly Bees is yeah. one. The there's Bees. The Bees. Then there's the Swarm. Yep. And then the most memorable of all: Invasion of the Bee Girls with Anitra Ford. It, well, yes, but see, I knew I knew it could be that. Yeah, because that's a good movie. <laughs> But the Savage Bees is now on my list of TV movies I need to track down. So, so I have a list of actors in uh, notable films for people that would listen to this podcast would either recognize them from or uh, oh yeah know about. So Tiffany Bowling, she was on in. She's one of the kidnappers. Yeah, the, she's just for those taking notes. She's the hot blonde. Yeah, <laughs> which which means she stands out from the two guys. She was in Bonnie's Kids, Wicked Wicked, Centerfold Girls, and Kingdom of the Spiders. Yes, she was also the villain, the villain, the Spider Lady yeah. on Electra Woman and Dinah Girl. Nice. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh yeah, you beat me to that one. Yeah. I was so excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which Electra Woman and Dinah Girl? You think about it. Not only was she on that show, but Sid Haig was on there too. You're talking about. You're starting to assemble yeah. a murderer's row of exploitation. <laughs> exploitation actors, yeah. <laughs> Sid Haig was on a lot of, like, oh, he did a Saturday lot. morning yeah, stuff. Yeah, he was everywhere. Yeah, he was dude, Drago he was, and he was, Star Command. Yeah. He was a working actor, man. He took he took jobs and he made money. End of story. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. I've always thought he was a badass. Mm-hmm. Um, we got Ben Piazza. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, he's in the Bad News Bears and the Concord, April 1979, and Rocky V. <laughs> yeah, and he, he had a small role there, yeah. And a role that everyone knows him from, although you don't know him. You'll know it as soon as I say it. He was in the Blues Brothers. Yep. He was the guy who John Belushi said, how much for your women, your wife and daughter? I want to buy them. <laughs> that was him. <laughs> so everybody has seen one of his movies. Well, that's the thing about him is as soon as you see his face, it's like, I've seen him in something. Yeah. And then you look at his list of credits, it's like, I've seen him in 20-somethings. Yeah. That's exactly, I mean, he's, his, his list of credits is insanely long. Uh, Susan Sennett. She plays the young kid, the, the kidnapped teenager. She was not a teenager. <laughs> nope, she was not a teenager. She was, uh, her only other film credit that I could find was Big Bad Mama. And she was also married to Graham Nash in yeah. 1977. Yeah, for like nearly 40 years, which when you think about it, Tiffany Bowling in um, King of the Spiders, Susan Sennett, Big Bad Mama, Shatner. Both. <laughs> both both yeah. Shatner. Both with Shatner. Which to me, that's a career right there. Now, Susan Sennett, as the, the kidnapped victim, um, 
that's that's a that's a rough role, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what you could have done with it. She 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 does a pretty good job with it, but at the same time, the one the one fatal flaw in this HD presentation of the film is you look at her and you go, is she sixteen or is she twenty eight? Hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she was to be honest, she was only twenty one. So there. And you had to be at least eighteen to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. stuff that goes on here that yeah. no self-respecting filmmaker was going to do to someone under 18. Yeah. So. And we also have Brad David, who was in Eat My Dust, 9 to 5, and War Games. Did a lot of television. Yeah. A lot and, of television. And I'll tell you one, some Alan, or sorry, Brad David, who played Alan, this is perhaps the most fascinating bits of trivia I have ever dug up on this show. <laughs> He was married, and one reason he got a lot of work, he was married to a lady named Nicole Jaffe, who was a mega agent in Hollywood oh. as, as time went on. In fact, probably the next actor we're going to talk about, Vince Martirano, she became his agent and kept him busy for years, too. Okay. But um, among her clients over the years, Whitney Houston, John Travolta, Lauren Hill, and... Um, oh, I'm drawing a complete blank. The kid who was in Lord of the Rings... Um, which kid? Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. Oh, Elijah sorry, just through a complete blank. She was the agent for all those people wow. and God knows how many more. And she was a bit successful. And was the voice of Velma in Scooby Doo. Wait, you mean what? the early 70s? The early 70s. She was the voice of Velma. Oh my God. Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought too. Like, that is unbelievable. That is one hell of a career right there. Yeah. Wow. That's Holy a woman crap. who made her mark. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. And last but not least, we have, who we've already mentioned, Vince Martirano, who is in another Vinegar Syndrome release, The Severed Arm. Oh, and I've not seen that yet. I haven't. Uh, yeah, I like The Severed it's Arm. Good. Okay. It, it's good. It, it's a good a good movie. Well, he, he's interesting. He didn't have a very long film career, but uh, when you see him in this, you'd think that surely he would. He looks... He had, he's, he's the... He's what you would think was going to be like the muscle character of the three kidnappers. And yet he's the one with the softest heart. He's the only one who's not a psycho. Let's put it that way. Well, you know, if, uh, if you look at him sideways, you might realize he had a prolific wrestling career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, looks like, he looks like Don Morocco. That's exactly right. Did your IMDb research turn him up in Fuji Vice? Or <laughs> Fuji Vice. Or Fuji Hospital? <laughs> Oh, no. oh, wait, was, wasn't he what? in Grunt the Wrestling movie? I, <laughs> he should have been. Well, when, he you, when you texted that photograph of the wrestler out to, to, the, to the rest of us, I took a, my, my initial look at that photograph and I was like, shit, is this the same guy? I mean, like, they it looks look like. a lot alike. It's a, it's a definite resemblance. Therefore, from this point on, Eddie will be uh, Don Morocco. Don Morocco. As we refer to him. Or The Rock, as he was sometimes called in the 80s before... <laughs> before Dwayne, the actual Rock came out. Before out. Dwayne Johnson stole all of his thunder. But <laughs> he was sometimes referred to as The Rock during the matches. But his career was managed, of course, by Mr. Fuji. And I think that might have killed some of his film career because <laughs> he moved into television with Fuji Vice and Fuji Hospital and things like that. <laughs> if you've ever seen Fuji Vice, which I still have a Fuji Vice shirt somewhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know what's weird is when there's the occasional thing that you two start talking about that I know I want to avoid. <laughs> We're in that area now. Now, before we go on with any, I don't know if you've got more of the cast you want to talk about, but all the leads were pretty much cast by um, Arthur Marks, who is the producer and the distributor. 
and he always wanted to cast as good of actors as he could in all of his films. And I think he did a good job with these. Oh, I agree. Oh, absolutely. He also produced um, Bonnie's Kids and the Centerfold Girls that Tiffany Bowling was in. And I watched both of those for in preparation for this as well. And they're both really good movies. I've seen Bonnie's Kids, but it's been years. Yeah. It's good. Um, in that one, it's sort of a crime thing. With It's kind of hard to describe, but it's sort of a crime, heisty, road thing sort of combined. But it's good. And the Centerfold Girls is nothing like what you think it's going to be. It sounds like it's going to be like a Candy Stripe Nurses, three yeah. hot chicks and it's shared in an apartment. <laughs> and it's actually an anthology film about a guy who stalks in order the women who are the Centerfolds for a men's magazine. So he kills like Miss May and then he goes after Miss June and then oh, wow. okay. Miss July. And it's like a half an hour devoted to each woman. And each story is different. And while there's a ton of nudity in it, it's not lighthearted at all. It's one of the most grim. <laughs> Lucky's wow. Girls is grim, but Centerfold Girls is very grim. Well, then um, from your description, in in order of chronology, we have Bonnie's Kids, which is kind of grim. This film, which is grimmer still, and from your description, the grimmest of them all would be this anthology tale? Yeah. Whoa, that's weird. And, and I'm not quite sure what the order. I think this Candy Scratchers might have been... Candy Snatchers might have been the last one filmed, oh, okay, okay. but they're all very close together. But um, they're all good. They're all worth seeking out. And it's funny. My wife Laura was out of town last week and was doing research for the show, and and I started to run down the movies I watched, and she's like, "Well, I'm glad I was out of town." <laughs> <laughs> my wife has watched this movie with me. Oh my god. Not recently. I think when I when I first got the vinegar syndrome when she watched it with me. Uh, now Tiffany Bowling says that um, Candy Snatchers killed her big money career. Eh, and, and, she, and there may be something to that. She says that in the, in the audio commentary on the DVD for Candy Snatchers. Yeah. But now in the Vinegar Syndrome release, she alludes to something very quickly that I think is probably more truthful that what killed her big money career was she did a spread for Playboy and yeah. in that she mentioned in there that she was having an affair with Frank Sinatra which became yeah exactly it, it did become common knowledge she started having that affair with Frank Sinatra while uh, while they were making Tony Rome mm-hmm. so that'd be the late 60s and uh, yeah, yeah so once yeah. she outed Frank Frank may have put a stop to her mainstream career yeah that, but that may have had some kind of some some kind of influence but what's wild is she had a lot of different avenues in her career. Tiffany Bowling, she she started singing out in the house in front of an audience at the age of sixteen. Was wow. singing, yeah, she was singing in coffee houses and clubs by by the time she was a teenager. At seventeen, she uh, got her first work on uh, television as a stunt worker in Flipper, the TV series Flipper, because her father worked as an advisor to Ivan Tors, who was one of the producers of the Flipper TV series. So that's how she wedged her foot in the door mm-hmm. of getting in front of the camera. Now, he also produced Gentle Ben, which, of course, starred Clint Howard of Evil Speak, which <laughs> I just wanted to mention. He just wanted to connect those things. Yeah. Yeah, so thank God those dots. It's part of the seven connected. degrees of Clint. <laughs> Which, actually, I think you could probably do with just about anybody. <laughs> uh, she, she released at least one album. Tiffany, of, of the album. I have a copy of that. Yeah, and that's not the 80s Tiffany. No. <laughs> this is, this is, this is Tiffany Bowling. It's actually, it's, it's fine. She can sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, she, she's not she's bad at all. I've heard some of the music I've ever and yeah, she had a voice. That's, that's, there's no two, two ways about it. She had, she had the talent. But the, uh, 
it was the, the 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 thing that really popped her career was the uh, the series The New People that aired in uh, 1969 and 1970, which was a, a TV series. Sadly, it only lasted that one season, and it's impossible. I've been trying to find episodes of it to watch. And there's no, there's nothing. I can't find any way to see any of the episodes of this because a the it's kind of a science fiction thing. Mm-hmm. It was created by Rod Serling. Oh wow! Yeah, and didn't Aaron Spelling produce it? He was he was the producer. Uh, uh, Serling was uh, the creator, and he wrote the original. Pi- he wrote the pilot, the first episode, and is essentially about a group of uh, teenagers who get marooned on an island that was going to be used as a uh, te- as a test island for an, ato- uh, an atomic bomb blast, but never got used. But once they're marooned there, they quickly realize that their chances of ever getting off this island are really slim. They're going to be here a while. And so the series is about them surviving on this island and essentially trying to set up some kind of viable society that will allow them all to, to survive and, and hopefully eventually get rescued. Apparently it was a pretty interesting series, and it certainly sounds interesting, which is why I would love to be able to find episodes of it, just to, just to sample some of them to see what it was like. But, You'd think with that pedigree that it would be yeah. out there somewhere. Yeah, but there, there, one of the things I read online real quick was that there was one guy who said he'd been looking to try to find episodes of it because he was interested in posting some of them up if nobody, if there was no other way to see them. And he says, honestly, he says, some of this may be lost. I can't tell because I can't find anything. Considering the stuff that isn't lost from that same period of time and considering that we're talking about a spelling production co-created by Rod Serling, holy shit, that's that weird. Somewhere. There's no way Aaron Spelling yeah, ever got somewhere. rid of anything. It just made me I wouldn't, locked I wouldn't think so. And one last thing about Tiffany Bowling is uh, the last film I ever saw her in as far as uh, production is concerned was the late 80s, 1987 Open House, which is a pretty decent little horror movie with Adrian Barbeau. It's worth seeing. It's not great, don't get me wrong, but it's not bad. Hmm. Have not seen it. I saw her in a movie called, I think, Love Scenes or Love Scenes. It's like a sex thing and... Is very unmemorable. It was one of those DVDs I found used. Watched about twenty minutes, and <laughs> all right, this this goes back into the cell pile. <laughs> you actually stopped the movie. Considering some of the stuff that you like, I'm actually surprised you hate anything. I didn't say hate, but bored. <laughs> yeah, Still. yeah, bored, well, that's bored, true. Is, bored is different. Yeah, well, that's true. I get rid of very little. So, yeah, and the things that you like, sometimes I scratch my head at. Hey, Even he, me. He, and I like some bad stuff. He owns every episode of Hee Haw. No, not every episode, but if they put them out, I would. <laughs> I thought you owned every episode. Wait. Oh, no, they've only released a few, like, doubles oh, of some of the I'm early sorry. episodes. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was wrong. And, like, um, with Hee Haw, there's, like, a, some divisions. There's the CBS years and then the syndicated years. Now, both of them have their, their good and bad points, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the plug. When it really point. gets bad, it's like after... <laughs> Like when they reach the point where they stop doing picking and grinning, they start doing instead. They do a segment called "Hee Haw Honky Tonk" after Buck has left. That's no good. And when they start doing like aerobics with the Hee Haw Honeys, you know, Wait, they try what? to update it into the eighties. Now that sounds good, but it's it does sound good. Wait, and it's just not quite the same. It starts to lose some of the down home flavor <laughs> instead of them hanging out on the sh- on in front of the shack. You know, I'm, telling I'm sorry, I'm just stuff. picturing the the incredibly well sculpted women. Doing aerobics with with hay sticking out of their leotards. Am I wrong? No, no. This would like be set like in a gym with like kind of like aerobicide or killer workout <laughs> oh. you know, kind of things. 
it, it's not as it doesn't have the same hominess as like the he hauls all jug band segments where all the girls would sing and then tell a joke. Or the, I remember those segments well. I I put them behind me until this second. Or that you'll never. <laughs> Catch one of us repeating gossip because you yeah, better yeah. sure and listen close the first time. It doesn't have quite the same appeal as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see how times have changed. Moving on. Well, actually, one more thing about Hee Haw. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> uh, uh, one of my wife's best friends, Diane, was in a, um, a singing group in the 80s called um, The Girls Next Door. Okay. And they had like some minor country hits, but they toured a lot and were on the Nashville network all the time on like um, Nashville now but she got to be on Hee Haw a couple of times and she once posted a picture of them doing the you better be sure and listen close the first time and I said I've never been more jealous of another human being (laughs) (laughs) oh my god so last but not least we gotta hit the music oh yes please the goddamn music (laughs) Okay. That fucking song. I was about to say, I would I will defend the score, but for this song, yeah, lay into it. And what's worse is if you're watching the Vinegar Syndrome release, it's on the. Uh, oh, it's on screen. the menu screen. Oh yeah, yeah. you can't get away you from. Can I get? You can. I mean, that song is played constantly throughout the fucking movie. I know. I know. So, let's tell them the title. Money is the root of all evil. No, no, no. All happiness. No, no. All happiness. Now, see, that's the only clever thing about the title, is that it's not the root of all evil. Money is the root of all happiness. That's the end of the cleverness. That's the end of the, oh, interesting. And they have a bumper sticker on the back of the van that says that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sorry, I, I messed that up because uh, that's, that's brain. Well, that's okay, because you, you, you went with the, the, the most common phrase. <laughs> that's not yeah. what they did, yes. So uh, the music's by Robert Drasnan. He's also done Teenage Devil Dolls, Picture Mommy Dead, and A Taste of Evil. He's a music supervisor at CBS for such TV shows as Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, and The Twilight Zone. He has scored incidental music for such notable TV shows as The Twilight Zone, Mission Impossible, Wild Wild West, Hawaii Five-0, Time Tunnel, Lost in Space, Mannix, The Man from Uncle, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Yeah, his, when his name came up, I, I was like, I know that name. I know it from somewhere. Now, uh, we were just listening to this earlier because we had discussed it. And none of us had actually heard this. Uh, he had composed the Exotica record Voodoo, Exotic Music from Pol- Polynesia and the Far East. Which and that was some good stuff. That, yeah, it was not bad at all. Yeah. If you're into that thing. And uh, luckily we all are. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Exotica. It's fine. But, uh, yeah, I... Honestly, with the exception of that goddamn song, uh, <laughs> I really don't have a problem with the incidental music. It's no, just, no, no. That song gets pounded into your head. It, it, yeah, it is. It is the the nail that gets struck by the hammer far too far too many times throughout the film. Yeah, and it is an earworm. You have to admit, you may hate that song, but it gets stuck in your it head. It gets stuck. Yes. Oh my god. I actually think I have some commentary about that song during the movie, too. Shame 
That the candy girl made to play the game But the need and greed for money Makes a man act kind of funny Makes him dream Feel the green She tried her best to change it She could never rearrange that troubled mind Or change the time Money is the root of all happiness I hate those old expressions, but it's true like that the foolish things it causes men to do money is the root of all happiness the foolish things it causes men to do One more cast member that we need to talk about is Phyllis Major, who plays the, um, I, I'm not exactly sure what she is, but she's the guy that Candy's dad, or not guy, she's definitely not a guy, she's the lady who Candy's dad is having an affair with at the jewelry store. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, There's the mistress, that. yeah. Yeah, the mistress. The mistress, the mistress at the, uh, the uh, jewelry store. Yeah, she is played by Phyllis Major. Yes, indeed. Who was married to Jackson Brown at the time this movie was filmed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, potentially, she was the first woman that he smacked around. <laughs> Very possibly, yes. But, um, just another interesting, we had two rock star wives in well, the she, same film. She, yeah, she yeah, she died a tragic death. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just like three and a half years after this film came out. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she died in 1976. What happens? <clears throat> I want to say suicide? Ooh. Yeah. She wasn't. She wasn't married to. It's not. It's not. Let's not cast uh, aspersions on Jackson Brown as a killer. We can cast aspersions on for other things, though. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely like to smack women around. That's, that's public record these days. Yeah. So yes. Sadly. Well, that's got to be downer. I didn't know. We were oh well, don't worry. <laughs> Downers are us with this particular I, film. But, I, I was, but yeah, after that though, it's nothing but laughs and. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's all fun and games from here on out. Right, bring Clarence Clemens, Clemens in. Let's sing that song about being friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just cry. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, let's talk about... So let's go through this uh, this plot synopsis of the film and talk about it in some detail. Uh, people, here very soon, we will alert you to, uh, to not listen to the rest of this if you don't want the ending spoiled, but we've got a ways to go yet. Just wanted to give you an update. Now that you've suffered through the fucking song. Candy is a 16-year-old girl who gets kidnapped on her way home from her Catholic school. Where the um, nun that she was walking with initially was oh. played by uh, Gordon or Gordon Trueblood's mother-in-law. Yeah, the director's mother-in-law. And I, I, one comment I have here is uh, that uh, even though they don't have any dialogue, I just put, that girl sure looks guilty walking around with a nun. 
<laughs> she has this guilty look on her face like she's done something. Well, she, she's afraid the nun's going to be able to psychically figure out that she's had sex. It's bad news. Maybe. You don't want it to happen. Got to go to confessional immediately if the nun looks at you the wrong way. You just got to go. <laughs> that's why I've never been. That's why I'm not Catholic. Or if you look at a nun the wrong way, you have to go confessional. What is the wrong way? Okay, what's the right way to look at a nun? Wait, let's back up. <laughs> the inquiring minds want to know, Mr. Hudson. Well, well, you're not Catholic. True. I don't know, it depends on what nunsploitation movie you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine point there. As someone who, I'm sure all three of us own the nunsploitation box set, so. I don't. You don't? You don't? No. You have, you have a stronger will than I, sir. Oh, yeah. That was a pre-order for me. <laughs> I had, had to get the comic. <laughs> I'm, I'm picky. I'm picky with those. Well, at any rate, the three kidnappers include Eddie, played by Vince Mar- uh, Bart- Bartorano. Don Maraca. <laughs> if that's what we're going to call him. His partner, Jesse. That's Tiffany Bowling. And Jesse's brother, Alan, played by Brad David. And they're all wearing the the Groucho masks without the mustaches. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. It's like the the lamest disguise. But first, first of all, why are they, why bother wearing the disguise? It's like it's it's just done for it's just that's done simply for the visual to have that weird image of them all sitting in the front of that van, so that we can look in through the windshield and see them that way underneath the credits. That's the only reason that's there. But isn't that enough? I thought that looked really cool. Well, it's I will a cool say, visual. Yeah, it's a cool I really visual. did. I thought that was a cool visual. But I will say that it does throw you off if you're expecting the opening few minutes of a film to establish tone. <laughs> okay? Well, that's actually, since we've hit that right off, one of the things I love about this movie is that a lot of the tone is odd. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, it's like there's so, a lot of it where you're kind of just thrown off by correct. what's going on and like little choices here and there where it's off kilter a lot. Yes, it is. And I, whether it was intentional or not, I think that works in its favor, where you're never quite sure what footing you're on sometimes. And it, it, I have to say, on this viewing, this is this to before we before we did this, this is only my second viewing of the film, and I have to say that my memory of it was that it was not as sure-footed as it ended up ends up being. It actually is a pretty well-made film. I was I was surprised because my memory of it, the tonal shifts are something that kind of put me off. In my initial viewing years back, I gotta say that it's better handled than I thought it was gonna be. And those tonal shifts, those moments when you're you're kind of off balance as to what you should be, what you should be expecting the film to feel like, actually work to its advantage most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, after taking their kidnapping victim in their van, tying her up, they bury her alive in a Southern California field. Uh, there's a pipe built into the top of it to give her uh, access to air, so she, of course she will not suffocate. And they are expecting that this—they're expecting this is going to be over in just a few hours because their plan, their well-worked-out criminal scheme, is going to be over and done with in less than 12 hours. They are—they—they—they've got this nailed down. What a great idea these people have. So, so I hate to do this, but this is just a—this is just some a, a comment I have that just. This is during the credits, and it kind of just astounds me. Uh, the kidnap victim, Candy. Yeah. She hitchhikes to go six blocks to hitchhike again, and that's when she gets caught. Yeah. Why does she hitchhike to go six blocks? I think you're forgetting, and this is a weird thing, okay? Hudson may remember this as well. 
hitchhiking was not the what the hell are you doing idea <laughs> that it soon became in the 60s and 70s. That was just a way to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, all, I'm reminded of, uh, I can't remember what movie it is, it may be Bone, the uh, Larry Cohen film, where there's a character who literally in L.A. spends her day hitchhiking from one end of this particular boulevard to the other. That's her day, just to meet people. This is what people... It wasn't considered some ridiculously dangerous thing. It looks psychotic to 21st century eyes, but what you're seeing there is this girl who apparently just regularly hitchhiked home from Catholic school? I guess so. It sounds dangerous. I know it sounds sounds dangerous dangerous just saying it. But if you look at a movie like uh, Teenage Hitchhikers, I mean, hitchhiking was fun in that movie. Yeah. For some of the people. (laughs) Until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I guess I'm kind of like of a, between us, younger generation, not by much, but uh, Mm. where people weren't really hitchhiking. The only genius I know that ever hitchhiked in my hometown was a girl that was with a guy who was borderline psychotic. She decided she was going to hitchhike to North Georgia and sell drugs. She wasn't very smart. (laughs) She announced this? Uh, that's I guess she told somebody because that's what they told me. And of course she hitchhikes. (laughs) First car that she gets in, I don't believe she was assaulted in any way, but they did lock her in a shed and steal everything she had. Oh my God. And I'm like... Why in 1993 or 4 would you try to hitchhike? That just sounds like the dumbest thing ever. Yeah, by that point, the word was out that it wasn't a good idea. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the weird thing. I think now, in like the past 10 to 15 years, it could actually be safer to try to hitchhike now than in the past. Because almost everybody would be able to like hold up and say, yeah, I've got my cell phone with me. In other words, not only can I in an instant push a button, and contact the cops, but I'm being tracked. Yep. And so it could almost be a safe thing again if you didn't run into psychos. I mean, it's not, not everybody's a psycho, thank God. But, I mean, in this film we're dealing with a couple. Well, okay, just out of curiosity, we're talking about the three kidnappers here. In your opinion, and I'm going to ask each of you individually, I'm going to lock each one of you in a closet and ask this. <laughs> Do you think on the, the the triad of bad that these people are more stupid, more naive, or unlucky? Because the idea, I can understand the idea. The idea is once we have the kidnapped victim in place, we never have to be near her ever again. In other words, our there, there's there's almost no way that this person could ever identify us because she's never seeing us, she's blindfolded the whole time, yada, 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 right? And our only point of contact is going to be picking up the ransom in a spot that we could see from, you know, like a mile away. So if we don't give the, the, the person who's paying the ransom much time We've got a, a really clear opportunity here to do this in a way that keeps us safe and keeps the police from ever being contacted before it's all over. Of course, it doesn't go that way or we wouldn't have a movie, but the idea seems fairly sound. You can see how somebody could come up with the idea and then sell the other two people on it. But is there, I mean, is, are they just, 
unlucky. I think Stupid. unlucky. Unlucky. I think unlucky. Yeah, because they're well, the big twist that comes up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I something. Mean, they're that, extremely unlucky. Is that they picked somebody who had that mindset? Yeah. About the whole kidnapping. Well, here's the thing. He calls them idiots, and we'll get to that because they didn't do their research. In other words, they didn't find out enough about this young kidnapped victim, this girl they kidnapped. They didn't find out enough about her home life to know that the person they were going to prod for ransom money didn't give a shit. But I don't know how they would know. I mean, even in today's... One way, well, the only thing he says is, I'm her stepfather. But even but that, that doesn't necessarily that mean doesn't that he wouldn't anything. care. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm the stepfather to three kids, yeah. and I wouldn't have this attitude. So, so I mean, I don't know if there's any way that they would be able to know. This is the, yeah, and, the, and the, so and I that think is unlucky true. really unlucky. is because it's a sound plan. And father or stepfather, most people would have the same attitude. Especially, I mean, even if you've just been married to somebody for a month, you would hopefully care enough about their kid that you wouldn't want them to die or not well, be rescued. Yeah. Kid. But he's been with this little girl for ten years. So since she was a little girl, so normally, this is a good plan. I would agree. And so what we have here... So do you agree that they're just unlucky? I think they're stupid. Okay. Now, the stupid aspect of it... See, I can see all three. The unlucky is definite. I mean, there's no way that they get into this shit. Well, they're definitely unlucky, but I think they're more stupid. If you look at each one individually, they do a lot of dumb shit. Oh, well, that's true. That's just it. Once the plan blows up in their face, almost every move they make after that is one level of stupid after another. Well, now, Alan, I don't think, is stupid as much as just crazy. Alan, the, Alan's he's the, psycho. He's a psycho, yeah. He's yeah. a psycho. And I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm not so sure that the that, that his sister is too far from the crazy tree either. Mm-hmm. And Don Morocco, on the other hand, he's dumb. He's dumb. Well, that's why he had Mr. Fuji around to manage him <laughs> without him being there to call the shots. <laughs> looks, looks, looks what he gets into. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> okay, well, when these three people bury her in the ground with the pipe, unbeknownst to them, Sean Newton, this little kid who, uh, the, the, back then they, were, they, didn't really, they wouldn't really put it this way, but the kid is clearly autistic uh, because he's, I, he's, he's like five, five or six, but he doesn't talk. He seems to be a perfectly normal kid otherwise, cute as a button, blonde, and obviously precocious because he likes to run. You know, we're, we're talking in the 70s. This is, this is the, uh, they, they refer to it now as free-range children. In other words, like when I was growing up, you got on your bike and you just left. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, well, my friend Randy, he lived about six miles away from my house. And yeah. we lived out in the country yeah. in extreme rural Kentucky. And during the summer, I would get on my bike and ride for like an hour and a half through deserted country roads to his house. Right. Just to spend the day hanging out with him. No way would I let a kid do that now. Oh, no. You know, and I was little. I mean, talking like 10, 11 yeah. years old, you know, but then it was, nobody thought anything about it. No, of course. The, the, the rule when I was a kid was, uh, you'd be back here for lunch, and she, you know, you know there would be an established time. you got to be back here by this time because so, you got to eat lunch. And when it starts to get dark, your ass better be at home. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Those were the rules. Yeah, I, I was uh, uh, from 
from eight to 23, I was living in a neighborhood with my parents that, you know, when we moved in, the neighbor, like across the street and far back across from us was all built after we had moved in. Yeah. We were just like right outside the Albany city limits, Albany, Georgia city limits. Um, so me and my friends would go like out in the woods and play. We would go out to construction sites and roam around. I mean, we'd be doing that all yeah. the time. All, yeah, all over the place. I mean, that's just it. I, I can, you know, I, I have firm memories of we, we were we were given specific, you know, specific roads you cannot cross. But those were like three miles from home. It's like you do not cross this road. It's too big. It's too large a road. Too much traffic on it. That's a dividing line. Mm-hmm. You do not go past that road. That's it you don't but that means there was like 10 square miles we can roam yeah. around in i mean holy now, crap even even with, if that weren't the case this kid's mom is not mother of the year material no she is not she's okay. the most annoying person in the entire movie that's true and that is saying a lot. that is true now back to the kid though he's of course played his name in the movie or his cast name is like christophe or christoph christoph that's it yeah christoph i'm sorry but it's Actually, Christopher Trueblood, who is the director's son, yep, and his performance is phenomenal. And you gotta, you gotta think. I once again that wonderful interview with the director, and t- being very upfront about you know the the first day they the first day they're working with him, he's he's very upfront about how the kid had not you know, he had not glommed onto what he needed to do, and so he like turns to the other actors and they're. <laughs> They're very clear about it as well. And so he has a little talk with his son. And after that, everything was fine. The kid, like, you know, handled it very effectively. And what you get on screen is a really naturalistic performance from the kid. Yeah. And I don't think he would have gotten that if his dad weren't the director. Because you know, he knows his dad. His dad can tell him anything. And he'll do what he say. He'll do what he asks him to do. Because he's his dad. Yeah, and an incredible performance, completely wordless, all done with just facial expressions and yep. with his eyes, and it is fantastic. And I mean that with no sarcasm. I will say this: there are at least two moments in the film where, um, because he's a kid who could talk and apparently talked a lot, according to his dad, where you can see where they're quick editing before the kid yeah. just naturally turns and says something because he's a kid. And he's, that was you know, he's five. One thing I couldn't find confirmed in the. DVD commentary from the old DVD that this comment this commentary track wasn't ported over to the I release, noticed that sir which is why which is why me being the stallion that I am held on to my old DVD <laughs> of course but but <laughs> gotta, it came gotta, in handy because gotta have was, all the extras because I was able to listen to it for this Tiffany Bowling says that the kid was autistic Real well, but the character then, is, but no. He, well, she says that he was autistic for real. Oh wow! Well, he did, but, but he, de- he definitely could talk. So. But. Susan Sennett doesn't really remember that either way. She didn't confirm it or deny it. She just said she couldn't really remember if he was or not. Nobody else ever mentions it. So it's sort of a, I don't know what the truth is. That's interesting. One person remembered him as being autistic, but this was also, Tiffany Bowling had a debilitating drug addiction at that point. She had a massive cocaine. So her memory may not be... Yeah. A hundred percent on that, but it, she might be right. No, nobody said either way. So now I was going to say the kid does have a, a unique looking face that would kind of give you the uh, thought that there might be something going on. Yeah. Yeah. Now whether he is or not, I don't know. I was assuming he wasn't. I was assuming he wasn't either, just because I can spot but, those moments where he clearly is talking. So. Yeah, but in the same respect, you can like look at this kid and go, there might be something there. 
Yeah. I mean, he's he he's not like somebody that's uh, trying to think of. Well, let's put it this way: it. like he, he's not coming off as slow. He's yeah. coming off as different. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. That's the best way to put yeah. it. Because the kid, the way the way the kid, the way the character is, and I'm assuming from the way the kid actually was, kid's not slow. No. No, the kid, the kid's honestly capable as far as the physical world is concerned. He just doesn't talk. Yeah. Well, so the the little kid, he tries to. He, he sees them bury the girl. They have they have not seen him at all. So he. Goes up, listens to the pipe, realizes what that what he you know he, he realizes oh yeah there is somebody in this hole, and then goes home to try to communicate this to his mother and father. You forgot that he drops candy down the pipe. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. He did. He, had, he was carrying a little box of candy, and he drops a couple of pieces down the pipe, which scares the hell out of the poor girl because <laughs> it lands right on her face, where she's of course blindfolded. She's still blindfolded, and gagged, <laughs> and then I, I, I found it interesting that he's dropping candy on candy. So, that is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay. She probably nice. thought it was a, a mouse pooping on her or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, just, that's just it. She would have no way of knowing. My, my assumption would have been it's a stone. Somebody's for some reason somebody's dropping stones down the freaking pipe. He's in there going stupid irony. <laughs> God. Oh lord. Well, the kid that well the, the kid cannot. Because he can't speak, he can't communicate this to his parents, and he's then, of course, forced into a bathtub, the most hated place for all children of his age, and cleaned up and dressed up because he and his parents have got to go to his father's bosses for dinner. And there's that great little moment where she puts him in the tub and says, when I come back here, if you're not clean, I'm going to whip you or whatever. And you see him just like take the soap and throw it and it bounces off the door. She's just slammed. <laughs> yeah. This kid is, this kid has obviously been through this before. <laughs> well, the kidnappers contact Candy's father. Uh, the character's name is Avery Phillips, played by Ben Piazza, demanding that he pay her ransom with all the diamonds in his jewelry store. However, Avery stays put doesn't report the abduction to anyone, including Candy's, uh, shall we say, alcoholic to be nice mother. And they were a real life married couple at the time the film was shot. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Good. To, well, that's that's wild. <laughs> so uh, just real quick to, to catch up here because I'm the I'm the party guy, so I have to identify this stuff. Uh, ah, yes, the booze. Yes. So uh, when they're in the van. Uh, when uh, Don Morocco is dressed like a gangster. Um, <laughs> his suit is awesome. Yes, his that. suit is very cool. I want that suit. He will get some leg tonight for sure. <laughs> <laughs> They're drinking a pint, pint of Old Baker Kentucky bourbon. Okay, yeah. And my best guess for uh, what mom is drinking, it's clear and it has a lime in it. I'm assuming it's gin. And I'll, my, through Google image search, my best guess would be Gordon's Gin. Now, I could be wrong. It could be something I don't know about. Cause well, the, the bottle shape is right. Yeah. The bottle shape is right. Uh, I, you know, they're holding the label. Well, with uh, in, in the van, they're, they're putting their hand over, over the label. The label yeah. Yeah. But I could identify it. Uh, with the, the gin, it's pointed away the entire time. I can see it's an orange and yellow label. So that's my best guess. And she liked her gin over ice, which means that she's a cold gin drinker. (laughs) (laughs) 
Mr. Uh, Hudson for the win. <laughs> well, we got it. always wins. <laughs> we get, we got in fact, it's the only thing that, that keeps, keeps us, us together. together. All right. <laughs> 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 Moving forward. You know, when you're feeling down. Yes, There's yes. only one drink that's going to pick you up the way you want it. <laughs> Okay, so the kidnappers get a little frustrated by the fact that the, 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 the father never shows up to where he's supposed to drop off the jewelry, where he's supposed to drop off the diamonds. They can't figure out what the deal is because this was supposed to be very short, very, very, very quick and over and done with in just a few hours. And the fact that he hasn't paid up means that they have now absolutely zero leverage. And they wasted all their money on that bird watching gear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they do have those little rice crisps crackers that they could eat. So. <laughs> there you go. By the way, those are good crackers. Ever <laughs> 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 the I don't know about bird watchers whether they prefer them to other other crackers, but I'm telling you, those are worth those are worth the money. You can pick them up. So the the kidnappers then, because this is where. What little plan they have runs out. And the fact that we're only like 25 minutes into the movie means that they are fucked. The kidnappers dig Candy back up and bring her to their hideout, which is this kind of abandoned, slightly slightly unfinished slash abandoned, destroyed house. They're obviously squatting in. Way and on the hill. just down the street or just up the road from little Sean's house yeah, where yeah. he lives so. so they're not that they're not that far away jesse and alan that's the the brother and sister intend to remove candy's ear to send to uh their her father as leverage kind of proof that hey we're not joking around here but eddie prevents this and this is where one of the scenes where susan Sennett, her crying during this sequence where they're yeah, talking about whether or not they're going to cut off her ear and they act like they're going to, where she's blindfolded so she can't see what's going on, is incredible. That little girl, well, she's, she's twenty. Well, but, she's, yeah, she was twenty or twenty or twenty-one. But my gosh, that it really rings like they say, "Okay, we're going to cut your ear off here, kid." Because <laughs> that and, is and honestly, they're serious. They're not. That's him off. Kidding, crying. Yeah. And while that's going on, they're drinking Budweiser. <laughs> I did notice that. And I, I, once again, I'm sorry, I keep having to do this to you on this one, but I want to jump back oh, what's it? Uh, for a scene because uh, we have to talk about Avery's uh, uh, Avery's uh, side piece. Oh, well, no, no, this, this, this is where we uh, are introduced to. This is our first look at uh, the, the poor kidnapped girl's father, stepfather, it turns out. Uh, his uh, his mistress. Yeah, when he knocks on her apartment, there is a very long scene of her chewing her glasses seductively. Yes. Mm-hmm. For a very, very awkwardly long time. I'm well, not sure what was so awkward about it. I gotta say, if, <laughs> you didn't go where I thought you were going to go with that comment because I, what you should have said right, right after what you started to say there was, and it's the most seductive thing in the entire film. <laughs> It is. It pretty much is, man. She's, but it's also very weird because if you're watching, you're like, why is she sitting there chewing her glasses? Like, what? Because she made it work. <laughs> yeah, because she knows damn good well that this look will get her anything she wants. Well, in the uh, in the DVD commentary with Tiffany Bowling and Susan Sennett, they're both talking about her and said, 
she's the best looking woman in this movie. Why does she not have to get naked? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly thought that she would. I, yeah. I, it had been so long since I'd watched the movie. I could not remember. I remember that Tiffany Bowling got, got naked and there was some, you know, she had regrets about that after the fact. But I couldn't remember who else. But as soon as I saw that particular woman, the woman playing the mistress, I thought, wow, my God, she's gorgeous. And as the movie started to close, I'm like, and she's the one we're never going to see naked. Yeah. <sighs> Good Lord. I don't want to come off as a scumbag, but I know I do come off as a scumbag when I say that. So, well, not just when you say that, really. Well, it's all kinds of things. <laughs> well, there's there's so many things, yes. Your middle name is Scumbag. <laughs> Rod Scumbag Barnett. I, I had that legally changed. <laughs> <laughs> your parents can curse you when you're born. You know? Now we just call you Mr. Bag. <laughs> Mr. Bag. <laughs> Rod bag. <laughs> you know, rod bag? That's something else. You just call me scrotum. <laughs> you, guys, you guys almost made me do a spit take this time. I noticed. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> You're like, payback is a bitch. That was unplanned. I love that. <laughs> but you kept it going because you knew what you were doing. <laughs> well, but when you see the broad outline of where the joke can go, <laughs> you just keep moving forward, all right? Well, uh, when, when Eddie says no to the ear removal, Jesse and Alan decide, okay, we'll, we'll fake this. So they visit the morgue where they bribe a coroner to remove an ear from a cadaver. This cost them 50 bucks. That was some rough negotiation. They started out at 10. And it's like, I, li- I like the whole negotiation with the more community. <laughs> that, that, that whole scene, honestly, there's a lot of ways that could have been played, and they struck just the right balance in that mm-hmm. scene. I think it worked very well. Oh, I, I love the, the corner they're talking to. That guy's hilarious. He's, well, he's great. And he's also, while, while he is being funny, this is a deadly serious thing. And, there's, I mean, and, and that comes across as well. That's what I mean. That's a well, yeah. that's a well done scene. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Eddie and Candy bond. So we have the one of the one of the trio, the 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 large lunky looking guy who turns out to not be all that bright. They begin to bond with uh, Eddie promising the girl that he will not let anybody do any harm to her. And, and I think their scenes together are really good. Yeah, I agree. actually, actually they are. There, they, there are some. That's the weird thing about this, and I didn't remember this being this way, but the movie has some really effective acting. Um, this is this is actually counter to my memory of the film, and I'm really, I was really kind of surprised re-watching this and how well everything plays out. Yeah, and, and back to the acting, too. I think the performances are pretty much good all the way around. They really, yeah. they really are, which, like I say is not what my memory told me. Mm-hmm. And they, they are pretty damn strong performances. I'm impressed. Actually, uh, one strange memory I had for the first time I saw the movie is of Eddie assaulting Candy, which did not happen. Yeah. But in, in my memory, he they had bonded, but somehow during all this he had assaulted her, which didn't happen. So I don't know where I got that memory mixed up, but it, huh. it, 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 it was another element that made this movie more fucked up. <laughs> but of course now it didn't it didn't happen I'm like oh wait well that's false memory that means uh, that means the fucked up and this is within you yeah probably <laughs> but uh, let's not skip over what Eddie's dream is is to own a bowling alley and fuck hookers <laughs> and you know I get it uh, yeah that sounds perfectly Every, everybody wants to own a bowling alley 
Right? Hey. <laughs> lo- Wait, I'm alone in this. Shit. I I have no problems with that. <laughs> it seems reasonable. No, the the rape, the the eddy on female nastiness comes when uh, Jesse and Alan return to the hideout with their with their uh, their corpse ear. Trigger time. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, we, we're going to get into rape talk here. Uh, sorry, folks, but yeah, this is when Eddie, who obviously does seem to have some kind of relationship with Tiffany Bowling's character, Jesse, uh, ends up just kind of forcibly having sex with her. And I just it's, thought he it's had, uncomfortable, man. It is. Uh, I just thought he had some kind of a creepy affection for her, not that they ever had well, anything to do. I think she it's kind of let hard. him on because yeah. she yes. gave the impression that when this is over, you and me are going to run off together. We're going to take our two-thirds of the money and get out of here. Yeah. And now he's realizing that not only has she lied to him, but then she pretty much laughs in his face and says, you believe me when I said that? Yeah, and it's, it's in the aftermath of this horrible act but we start to get an inkling that Jesse may have some real deep-seated mental issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. She's not he's like we find out soon enough that her brother definitely is a psychopath. And you're starting to see that it may run in the family here. So Yeah. And, and one thing about this rape scene, Tiffany Bowling had actually been driving the van around for real during all the scenes where she's driving. Yeah. So her butt was so bruised that they couldn't pull her pants down all the way to film it. So you can only see just the top of her butt. Oh, that is, that oh, really? Sequence. So she was very thankful <laughs> wow. that she didn't have to go like full bottom nude there for her for the ass shots, which is why you only see it go down just like the plumber crack. <laughs> oh my lord, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a very demented rape scene because she's against it, and then she's kind of into it at the end, which kind of leads you to believe there's something wrong with her. Yeah, not justifying the scene because you know. That, that no, kind of but then also is, you couldn't. Yeah. There's no. There's no just. Was she the into yeah. it or was she just like sort of like resigning herself to let's get it over with? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Like she's just once again trying to manipulate things. She seems like she, she manipulates people through being a female and her sexuality. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because well, she that's, actually that's, alludes to it during that scene. That well, it's yeah. it's been alluded to up to the up to the rape scene that this is how she. She's the reason. She's the one who enticed Eddie into going along with this criminal, this criminal yes. kidnap scheme in yes. the first place. And then to make it even more disturbing is while this is going on, Candy, who's still blindfolded, is out in the living room, can hear all this. Yeah, and she's already bonded with Eddie, so she hears all of this going on, and yeah. who knows what's going through her mind? But she's banging her head on the floor, talking to herself, trying to drown out the sounds of what's going on, which is just it felt. Overly realistic and kind yes. of—it's cringy, man. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like extremely it, effective. It just adds more intensity to yeah. an already very uncomfortable intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Eddie gets all dressed up, looking like you know, in a, in a three-piece suit, so uh, that he can go and present this severed ear to Avery and uh, let him know, hey, we're we mean business here. We're not, not kidding. No, no, no. We're going to correct we you. We got to correct you there. The three piece suit was earlier when he dropped off the ransom note. Oh, that's right. This is where they attack the phone man. Yeah, and they get. Well, I'll let you continue, right? Well, they, yeah, they they decide a, that they want to disguise themselves, or they want to disguise Eddie, so that and also get a vehicle they can use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they won't they won't be showing they won't be using their vehicle to go to have this meeting at the jewelry shop. And does anybody remember what the phone man's t-shirt says? Oh, absolutely. Mr. Hudson, would you care to share that with us? Of course. 
Breakfast of Champions, <laughs> which I think each of us should have those shirts made for our next group photo. Yes. <laughs> With the Bloody Pit logo on it. <laughs> of course. But uh, they, they try to mug the phone man to get his van and his outfit. <laughs> and that and was that took more work than they thought it was going to. They thought it was going to be easy, and it was incredibly difficult for everybody involved. Oh, because he was a big burly guy and in fact he was played by James Whitworth who played Papa Jupiter in Hills Have Eyes. Oh really? Same actor? Really? Really. Yeah. Wow I did not even know that. That's, that is amazing. Yeah. Well, the, well, the Same guy. The character he plays in this film can take a punch and <laughs> dish one out because it took all three of them to find a way to get this guy on the ground. Holy I love God. her. I love her uh, what's her name is a uh, Hitting him on the head. Yeah, she hits she, him on the head. And she can't hit him hard enough. She keeps hitting him on the head with, with the board. With, with, that, with that two by four. And she's yeah. like, darling, <laughs> after the first time, you might want to move away. And when it's all done, next time can we pick a smaller phone guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that shirt so much. Though. Yeah. Oh, I knew you would. <laughs> so Avery goes pretending to be a phone guy has a conversation with Avery explaining, hey, I'm one of the kidnappers and we're deadly serious. Here's the ear. But this is where it turns out that this is where we learn why this is such a bad situation. Avery just explains, look, you didn't do your research. I'm the girl's stepfather. And Candy, that little girl, is set to inherit $2 million from her late father when she turns 21. But if she dies before then... I get half of that. So if you kill her, I'm a millionaire. So go kill her. I don't give a shit. And as soon as this as soon as he tells him this, and he realizes, oh shit, we have literally zero leverage. And I love There's the, nothing we could do. I love the moment during that whole encounter where Eddie, his delivery is great, where he's like holding the box with the ear and he says, We are going to kill her. <laughs> and, going, and Avery's going, yeah, good. don't care, yeah, don't care. And then he really doesn't know what to do, so he just looks confused. Yeah, for us oh, yeah. he lo- he looks like somebody hit him in the head with a hammer. I mean, what else? You want to talk about the opposite? That's more than the opposite of what he expected this guy to say. It's like the opposite plus ten. It's like, how did we get here? How are we in this place? This is not a negotiation. This guy ain't even interested in the, p- the position we put him in. He doesn't care. You're not done. only it's is, their, is their plan screwed up, but he he likes this little girl. So now he realizes, what are you going to do with her? Yeah, what do we do now? Yeah. It's too bad Mr. Fuji wasn't around. That's right, because he could have got to the bottom of this quick. He just thrown <laughs> salt in his eyes. <laughs> I just realized I just realized that we may have skipped over something that you might have been interested in, which is the what we see is that uh, Avery, the stepfather, is keeping the girl's mother in the dark. By keeping her drunk. Oh, yeah. I didn't know if we knew what the hell she was drinking because he's mixing the drinks for her. But he seems like it's just straight booze. Just cold gin. It, it does, well, that's just it. He, it's clear he wants this woman drunk and willing to accept whatever he says to her about why, you know, Candy's sleeping over with a friend tonight, which is why you're not going to see her tonight. Oh, she got up early and she's already headed to school. So, you know, because now Bob's waking up with a hangover, of course. With an ice pack on her. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. One thing I thought was was funny in this the whole jewelry store jewelry store thing is that 
it's just you see like some display cases with some jewels with a completely jet black backdrop. Right. So it looks like an incredibly cheap set. It was yeah. shot in a real store. It, oh no, no, this was shot. This, yeah, they, they they even put it in the credits. This was shot in a real upscale jewelry store, a, a place of note. So here's one thing I wanted to comment about the jewelry store. I meant to do it earlier. Um, when when you're first there, I think they're a fucking restaurant because people are sitting at tables like drinking and stuff outside. <laughs> yeah. And there's a jewelry store inside. I'm like, wait, what the hell is? Go- are they at a restaurant? Or are they like I? It's it's totally jarring, especially the first time mm-hmm. you watch the movie because you're very confused. It's like, are we at a restaurant? Are we at a jewelry? Is it restaurant jewelry store? Like, what the hell's going on? It's it's one of those the way it's laid out, and unfortunately, it's clear that although they were allowed to shoot inside the jewelry store, they they it's built in such a way so that they can only place the camera in certain spots. Mm-hmm. So what if you have to pay attention to the fact that this is one of those jewelry stores that has this area where the customers. Obviously, largely upscale customers would be seated at a table, and the things would be brought to them. See, I've never seen that in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this this is very much a concierge service kind of thing where you don't wander around the store. They bring the stuff to you and show it to you where you're sitting, and they will offer you drinks and things of this nature. The whole thing is to keep them there and keep them looking until they, you know, they're. And depending on the kind of person, until there's some kind of obligation felt to to go ahead and make a purchase. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for a middle class guy like me, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a little jarring because you just can't figure out what the hell's going on. Because you think they're at a restaurant at the very beginning. Yes, yeah. it's like probably like the only like f- maybe film continuity thing that like confuses me is that in the entire movie just because one I've never heard of this before until now and I know and, what you're talking about and I think and it two, goes, yeah, yeah it looks like they're at a restaurant until yeah. you go into the jewelry store and then you're kind of like wait what well to put it in let me interpret this in a way that Bobby can understand this concept <laughs> it's an upscale record store you're seated outside and the owner comes out and says sir would you be interested in this sealed first pressing Venom album <laughs> <laughs> That would still make no sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're allowed to look at and even touch the record album. <laughs> and then if you if you decide if you nod your head, then it, he will place it upon the table. And if you shake your head even slightly, he will retard. He would go return back, back into the come store. Back with, come perhaps, back with something else. Perhaps this Italian pressing of the first Merciful Fate LP would be of your interest to you, sir. <laughs> Can I draw your attention to the back cover, which has female nudity? <laughs> okay, okay. We, we, carried, we carried that skit quite far enough. <laughs> okay. It's the Bloody Pit Comedy Hour. <laughs> <clears throat> so, Helen Lee... <laughs> Eddie's stunned and leaves the place. Goes back and explains, explains to his two co co kidnappers what the situation is and the fact that they're completely screwed now. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Alan heads to the headout to kill Candy because he thinks that once this is over and done with, now that the girl has seen their faces, they're going to have to kill her anyway. And Avery and, and Avery know. I'm sorry, Alan knows that if they wait around for Eddie to be around then he'll object or maybe even stop them from killing the girl. And it's just like, no, 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 we got to get this done. Well, now the reason that she has seen their faces is while they're at the jewelry store trying to put the 
you know, put the pressure on. Sean, the little boy, shows up at the cabin. Yeah, he kind of sneaks in. Yeah, and manages to pull Candy's blindfold off. And so Candy's now aware that there's a little kid who apparently can't speak, but is aware of the situation. So she tells him to get the police. Right. And what does he do? He, he tries. <laughs> he does his best. The kid can't talk. So he goes home, dials up the cops, and he has a little toy. He doesn't like, dial up the cops. Oh, oh, that's right. He dials up. He thinks he's dialing the cops. He dials a random number. Right. And manages to get a delicatessen in New York. Yeah, a Jewish delicatessen. In New York. And you know his mom is going to be mad when that phone bill when comes When that in. phone bill comes due. But he All hell's going to break loose. A little talking policeman doll up to the phone that just says, police, open yeah. up. He pulls the <laughs> string and it says the same thing every time. And he's 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 doing his best. The kid is trying. This is not a stupid kid, but he's he's working he's working with some some bad parameters here. He's just I can't talk, so I got to find a way to communicate this. And he's got Henny Youngman on the other side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True. <laughs> what is going on here? So Alan comes back into the cabin. Yeah. Into the the hideout. Candy's blindfold is off. So he now he's like, okay, well she's she's seen she's seen at least me now, so this is this is definitely the way we've got to go. So then he decides, well, now that you've seen me, I'm just gonna go ahead and rape you while we're at it. Yeah, and this is where the movie starts to make it very clear just how much of a psycho Alan is. Um we as things progress, we do learn that Alan rather matter of factly tells his sister, he has to think about it for a few minutes that he's killed 12 people. Actually murdered 12 people. That's before this movie starts. And like some demented serial killer, he does end up murdering two more people in the movie and verbally calls out, oh, 13 and 14. He's a nut. He's crazy. He needs to be locked away or crushed under a heavy weight. I'm not sure. Either would be fine. Oh, what a sick individual. Anyway, that night, Eddie takes Candy uh, to the grave and they bury her. Uh, and, he bur- and he buries her like they buried her in the first place, telling her that uh, he promises to return and, and to get her out. But this is the only way he can come up with to keep her safe, to keep her away from Alan and Jesse because they've just decided she needs to die. But you uh, did skip, the, uh, you did kind of gloss over the uh, part where Eddie and well, Don Morocco. And the lady arrive, and he rescues Candy and throws the guy against the wall. Yeah. And she said, you lied to me. Oh, the oh, oh actually, that's the... You're right. I shouldn't have skipped past that, because yeah. that's really kind that's, of the, the the beating heart of the of the yeah. story. That's the that's where kind of the central metaphor of the film comes to tr- comes comes straight out and yeah. is said, which is... You, you can repeat it. The, the, yeah. the, the Candy says to, uh, to Eddie... You lied to me. And then he says, everything, everything is a lie. Is a lie. Everything yep. is a lie. Fantastic line. Yes, that's that's the line of the film right Yeah, there. everything's a lie. And that may be the darkest... I, I know that this is saying a lot. <laughs> but that may be the darkest moment in the film, but you only realize it after the fact. Yeah. It's like, that really does tell you how everything else is going to go. It's rough. Once again, people, if you haven't realized it by now, this is a dark little movie and we're entering irreproachable spoiler territory. Keep it in mind. 
And so while this is going on, too, the kid is hiding in the attic. Yes, because he could get out quickly enough once uh, Helen showed back up. And so he does uh, try... He, he escapes, he makes noise, they come chasing after him and bumble around, all three of them. Yeah. And then they think it's a cat, and he's like, out the door, gone. He does try to steal his mom's scissors, who catches him, that's my best best scissors, which is funny, because right after she grabs him out of his hand, she throws him on the ground. I, get, I have the feeling that character is like half in the bag all day long. She really is. But it's at this point that Eddie takes Candy out to the grave, buries her, promises her that he'll come back and save her, tells Alan that he's killed her so that Alan will shut the fuck up and stop trying to figure out some way to kill the girl. Mm-hmm. Not sure Alan completely believes, or believes him, but he's convinced of it enough to let it go. And he's buried her now where the original pipe that they used is not there, but he's put another sort of he's air passageway to, to the side, like yeah. with a rain gutter. Yeah, yeah, like over the hill, because they're kind of yeah. on a, there's a steep hill that goes off the driveway, so it's actually on the side where, if you're looking, you know, you're looking at the one pipe, it's sticking up out of the ground. It's not there, it's just sitting on the ground. Yep. And the other one's sticking out over the side, so you'd have to actually go and look for it. Well, as Sean watches them drive off, Sean is the little boy. He tries to sneak back with a pair of scissors. This is where yeah. his mother has another fit. Uh, then she drugs him. She, yeah, she gives the little kid, she gives him a downer to keep him quiet. Once again, the 70s. <laughs> Here, have a mother's little helper. Everything will be fine. And she said, I'm going to put you to sleep so I can live or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which means she's going to go out and get hammered. Or not go out and get hammered, but get hammered. Pretty much. Well, the kidnappers then visit Catherine. That would be the girl's mother. Yeah. Who uh, becomes intoxicated. I'm not altogether sure she's not intoxicated the whole time. <laughs> becomes intoxicated. I think she just gets more drunk as the three of them are st- sit there and have a conversation with her. Uh, and then is actually uh, seduced by Alan. Our psycho wiles his way into her bedroom with her. I guess you gotta. The kidnappers have Catherine, have Catherine call her husband. Who, of course, you know, blows is, her off. Blows her off because he's busy. He's busy with the girlfriend. Uh, Avery eventually returns home hours later, much later than the kidnappers are really happy about. Because his mistress threw him out. Yeah, yeah. Because you get the feeling this isn't going to last much longer anyway. Yeah, yeah. This mistress may have decided eh, I've been fucking the boss long enough. So uh, he returns home, and where he is held at gunpoint by the kidnappers. While Alan murders his wife. Told you it was going to be dark, folks. Told you it was going to be dark. And away we go. Yeah. At this point, Avery then leads the kidnappers to the jewelry store because he's aware now all bets are off and he's probably going to get killed if he doesn't find a way out of this. He delivers them to the contents of the safe. Avery fails to retrieve his revolver. He tried really hard. He had a, he had a, he had a pistol stashed there but Alan Alan came across it earlier and took it out of the drawer and put it in his own pocket and then just waited for waited for (laughs) waited for Avery to to try to pull something so that he could get his hands on the gun so that he could uh, well smash his hand in the drawer Mm -hmm. he gets uh, gets sadistic Um, Alan then attempts to shoot Eddie so we now have the kidnappers turning on each other and Eddie ends up killing him 
So we have a happy moment there. Eddie killing Eddie killing the psycho is a good thing. Yes. Yeah, shoots him right in the eye, like blood, like red paint gushes out of his fingers. <laughs> red temper paint, yes. Uh, Eddie and Jesse then try to escape, but Avery kills Jesse, shoots her right through the chest. Or does he shoot her in the back? I know it's in the upper torso. I think it's in the chest and it comes out the back. Yeah, yeah. The shot we get is definitely from behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, they're they, in the jewelry they, they, store and it's dark and this takes so long that when they run out it looks like it's noon outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did say that it was, it was late at night it when was he got late, back. Boy, so now we, got we've got to assume that, that, that okay, morning has definitely arrived. Uh, <laughs> uh, Avery, after killing Jesse, then pursues Eddie all the way up to the hideout and the grave site, which is where, you know, where the, where the, where the, where Candy is buried. There they have a gunfight that is actually pretty tense. Mm-hmm. Gotta admit, yeah. there's a, there's a realism to the, to the stumble bumble fuck up nature of this that works pretty effectively. That ends with Avery getting killed. But Eddie ain't in great shape. Eddie's had a rough day, folks. <laughs> Eddie attempts to dig Candy up, but then out of nowhere, our little boy Sean. Spoilers, folks. Spoilers, spo- uh, spoilers. Just tons of spoilers. We're going to spoil it all. The little boy then shoots Eddie dead with his father's handgun. I thought he got the gun from. Avery. I thought yeah. it was his father. I thought it was Avery's that oh, Avery was it? dropped. Oh, okay, okay. I'm yeah, because he came from that direction. Yeah. Oh, God. You may be right. Anyway, Sean listens to Candy's breathing through the pipe. Now, think about it. I, this is this is the moment this film has been building up to. We have little girl buried in a hole in the ground, unable to get herself out. Little autistic boy, unable to speak. And that's it. That's where we are. His mother then steps out and starts calling the little boy home with the cowbell, which is how she signals across a fair distance that it's time for the boy to come she home. She apparently is hungover. Yeah. When is she not? Uh, prompting the little boy to make a trail to his house by sliding down the hillside. Then a gunshot is heard, followed by the sound of the cowbell dropping and Candy's breathing in the underground prison continuing. So in other words, the little five-year-old autistic boy blew his irritating mother away, is what we're led to believe here, just through sound. Yeah. And Candy's final fate remains unknown. That's in credits. We're left on the, one of the, I, I would just call it one of the nice 70s existential what-the-fuck moments mm-hmm. of how, you know, how do we end this? The most depressing way possible. And it's a Just great, shy of killing everybody. And, and it's a great crane shot, too, during that whole yeah. sequence where it, like, oh, pans yeah. up and up and up, and then you just hear just the breathing. Yeah, yeah. And we, then you hear that goddamn song again. I knew you were going to complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not... Folks, I'm not going to put the song in here again. I'm just not going to do it because I have... I, I don't want to hear it again myself. So there's that. Nobody wants to hear that fucking song. You know, if the, if somebody did, if Waxworks did a 45 of that, you'd buy it. Probably. <laughs> oh my god, you would? <laughs> you would? With like, the backside just being like the instrumental version, you'd buy this? Are you kidding me? 
It sounds like I'm leading you down the garden path, and I know something exists like this, but I don't. No, it doesn't. Okay. Yes. Now, if they did a picture sleeve, he would for sure. <laughs> it does take me back to one thing that we didn't mention earlier. Picture okay. sleeve. Picture sleeve just has the severed ear. On. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's on the label. The the spindle hole is the ear <laughs> the ear canal, but. What the picture sleeve could be the uh, the poster art for the film, which is very Last House on the Left. Oh, hey, totally. Yeah, totally last I meant to bring that up earlier. It's like the three killers with the girl underneath. I mean, it's oh you can, yeah, you can tell they looked at and it. This is this is a this was released a year after the Last House on the Left. So that being the gargantuan dark little success that it was is not to, not a surprise that you follow, you would follow along in the advertising campaign with something similar so yeah that's true yeah, there's a bunch of movies made like that after that point oh yeah time so yeah well with that in mind and with the knowledge that dark depressing endings were something that were fairly common in the 70s do you think this film earns the ending that it has Yes. Yeah. I'm in agreement. Often with these films, it'll, a dark, depressing, down ending will come almost out of nowhere. And it, and it feels like somebody just walked up and slapped you or threw cold water in your face. Whereas it's hard to imagine a movie of this type ending any other way. But at the same time, I will admit, my memory of this film was I liked it less in memory this time around, I was really impressed by how well done the film is. I think it's actually a very good film, even though it's so dark and depressing that it's, it's not going to be something I pull out very often to, to rewatch. This is probably my, I would say, fourth time seeing it. Okay. Second since I've owned it. Um, it's a good film. Yes, it would be one that I wouldn't pull out quite so often. I probably wouldn't have pulled it out the second time so recently if we weren't reviewing it but uh, one thing about it is the movie's just really well done yeah um, the actors are great there's a lot of good camera shots I mean for a low budget film it's really well done it's not too on the lascivious side where it, it glorifies in its sleaziness I mean no no uh, people are paid back for for the bad things that they have done the, the, I mean, na- the nasty characters are not seen as in any way anything other than despicable. Yeah. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, that's the majority of the cast except for Candy and the kid. Yeah. Um, you know, it's definitely not a feel-good movie, but it's a good movie. It would definitely kill your party if you're watching it. <laughs> oh, <there>. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's a great movie. I like it quite a bit. Um, I, I have no problems with the ending at all. I actually kind of wish... They would have just rolled the credits with just the breathing. I think that would have been even more demented. Oh, I agree. Yeah, without the song, I, I think just this, the breathing yeah, of the exactly. credits, that, that would have been better. Yeah. You beat me to it. I was going to say exactly that. Because that bringing that song back in, I know what they're thinking, which is it's a natural enough thing to bookend something with a song. You know, you, you started the movie with that and you bookend it with the same thing. But just the breathing and let the credits just play over a black screen with just the breathing, holy hell, that would have been even more rough yeah 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 i think the movie's like guys said extremely well made and watching the other two arthur marks productions bonnie's kids and centerfold goes they're not as good as this but they're also really well made i mean very well acted i mean he the guy made some good movies he put together good stuff and i need to see centerfold girls is that how how easy is it to see that it's on a double feature with bonnie's kids and i think it's still in print is it get which company put it out okay 
And neither one are as good as this, but they're both good. I mean, they're good, solid exploitation movies. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm a, I would have to say that I did not think that this was going to be true because I was really not looking forward to revisiting this film. Uh, because I did, after my initial viewing years ago, consider it a one-time watch. It's like something I'm not ever going to feel the need to, to go back to, and I was cursing Hudson's name for forcing me to. But now that I have rewatched it... I would never it, make you watch a bad movie. He says, lying <laughs> through his fucking teeth. <sighs> <sighs> but I'm glad we did. I'm glad I rewatched it because this is a really well-done film, and that was that was not my memory of it. My memory was not that it was a bad film. It was that it was one that... I couldn't I couldn't see past the depress the depressing aspects of the final act to to appreciate it. That, that, that that's a shame. I'm glad I've been able to correct that. Good. And I and I really did come into this remembering it as being a good movie and I had not watched the Vinegar Syndrome release yet as yeah. we I think it had just come out when I said, "Hey, let's do that one next because I knew it would be easy for everybody to get." But I remembered it being really good. So I didn't go into this thinking, oh, you're going to hate this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, even from the first time I watched it, I always thought this movie was good. Yeah. It, it's not kind of like the funny, ha-ha exploitation stuff that you know I kind of like to say is party movies. Yeah, you, but, you, would, you, would ne- you would never... The first word out of your mouth describing this film to someone would not be the word entertaining. But good, I think, mm-hmm. would be one of the words yes. that would be popping out of my mouth. Yeah. It's, a well, it's a good, it's a well-done film, but it's, you know, I, there would be warning words after that. And, you know, as I get older, and I don't want to get into a long discussion about this, but, like, you know, it, 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 the key thing of old exploitation films is there, there's rape in it. Yeah. And um, yeah. As, I get, as I've gotten older, I'm definitely a lot less comfortable with that kind of stuff. I know it's just something that happens in this genre of films. But when it's lascivious or it makes light of it, like it, there, there's funny things going on while this horrible act is going on. Or, you know, or if it feels like the film is attempting to justify it. Yeah, yeah, or anything like that. I'm I'm a lot less comfortable with that. And it, this film does not do it. It makes it makes those things uncomfortable. Oh yeah, yeah. rape scenes are ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 and, and yeah. purposely so. They're 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 not presented in this film as anything other than a despicable act. Yes, and you know, like uh, I don't really have a problem with the rape and revenge genre as long as there's revenge. But say like a, I think the movie I saw it a long time ago. It definitely made a wife uncomfortable. I had to watch it because I had to finish it. It's an Italian film. It's called I think it's called like Last House on the Beach or Last House on the Beach. Yeah, Last House on the Beach. Ray's, is a, Ray, that's a, that is a rough film. I've talked about that recently with uh, yeah. Ray Lovelock. He's one of the yeah, main characters yeah. in it. It's a well done movie. It's just really uncomfortable. It's ninety five percent like all these people getting brutalized and raped, and then five minutes of revenge, and that's a little bit too much for me yeah, yeah like I don't have to revisit this film I had to watch it all the way through poor, poor Steph decided she would <clears throat> take a nap during it she was getting so annoyed with everything and it was making her uncomfortable I said I just need to finish it yeah and all she could hear was people screaming for like 90% of the movie and I'm just sitting there in my head, my head going can this movie just end and like the revenge should have been there should have been more revenge agreed like I, I would prefer something like Mrs. Forty Five, where you get that out of the way. It's a horrible thing, and then it's her reaction to these things that happen to her and how she takes it out on the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Well, or it's like it's it's like having to try to explain. Um, oh my God, uh, the the famous one with the, I spit on your grave. Yeah, with I spit mm-hmm. on your grave. It's trying. It's like trying to explain to someone who's never seen it and only knows it by reputation that seventy five percent of that movie is the revenge part. <laughs> It is, but you have that twenty-minute scene. That, yeah, exactly. That it's the first. It's the first yeah. act that is really, really rough. And one thing that this movie does, though, as much as we've talked about rape, is the rape scenes are are pretty quick. They're they're yeah. not yeah. prolonged. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, and but, they're not in the film to titillate anyone. They are uncomfortable making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you're doing that, that's the way it should be. Right. Um, you, know, and, you know, especially going back to what I was saying, getting older and being less comfortable with that because I know what this means now as when I was younger, I did not. Yeah, yeah. Because I just had no inkling of anything. Like, you know, rewatching movies um, that have some of the things that I, elements I don't like, I can't really do it. Like, I don't really want to watch I Spit on Your Grave again just because of that 20 minutes. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I watched it like a half a dozen times when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, there are some really fun murders in it. Although I just, honestly, I would argue that the vengeance part of that movie is it it does start to border on me rooting on the vengeance. I do oh, absolutely. To, I do start to feel like I'm really fully behind Camille Keaton's character. Yeah. I really am. But uh, yeah, like this movie, it kind of hits that line where it's like, yeah, we're going to do this, but this is uncomfortable, and these people are going to pay. So, you know, right. It's it's just an all around well done movie, even with these sleazier elements of it. This is, uh, like I say, I just want to say again that uh, I was not looking forward to revisiting this film, but I'm glad that I did. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, this is one that anytime um, on like the Vinegar Syndrome Facebook groups, if somebody says, hey, there's a sale going on, what's a movie that you would recommend that I might not have seen? And out of their catalog, I always recommend this and Sudden Fury. Which I, I, have. I haven't watched that yet. I've got it, but I don't know if I have. And I always say, these are both really solid movies from the 70s that if, yeah. if I were to just recommend two Vinegar Syndrome titles that oh, I think yeah. are good movies start there cool 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 uh, well folks uh, now we've just got one thing left which is uh, to swing the camera so to speak over toward Mr. Hazard because it is your turn to choose our next film yes what are we going to watch and review uh, the next time that we all three gather around a table, sir. This one has been years in the making because I have been trying to convince Rod to do this for about five years. And it's been easy for me to resist for two reasons. Uh, one of which now is no longer no longer a viable uh, argument, which is that it was too hard to get my hands on. It's not available. Well, now there's a Blu-ray of it. So. <laughs> I, can't, I can't hold that up anymore, and so I... I'm kind of standing there with one argument, and I can't even really validly make that argument anymore. So, what is the film, sir? It is a not Grunt the Wrestling movie. Correct. It is. You, I really hope you cue to, cue to music when I say this. <laughs> <laughs> it is Stunt Rock. <laughs> Yes, Stunt Rock. So uh, we will definitely, uh, next time we gather around a table, sometime uh, 2024, we'll... Uh... <laughs> That's the one. And I'm glad because for, for the longest time, I mean, Bobby wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. But Rod was like, well, I have 
I've seen it once, and really, have, honestly, that was enough. I have the voting, the, the veto power here, but then we got a third vote from the Invisible Chimp. Finally said, <laughs> Thank you. I wondered, waiting for that. I wondered when the hell weighed in and you were going to slip, slip that diaper where he could not, into this situation. He could not stop a 75% majority vote. <laughs> I, actually, that, and what's the weird thing? This this will be an odd thing to go along with this. One of the reasons why I don't have as much of an objection to Stunt Rock strangely enough is that enough time has passed since I actually first saw it that a few a few fleeting moments that have stuck in my mind are making me want to revisit it just to, to try to remember how they fit into the entire piece plus I gotta be honest with you there's that nagging thing at the back of my mind where I kind of want to hear the music again which is now available it just got re-released this summer that's true. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Riding Easy Records put it out on CD, cassette, and LP. The LP just came out this past week. I got it within two days of ordering it. I was very happy. Did you go to one of those shops where they bring it out to you at your table? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did. And present it to you? <laughs> Sir, a fresh pressing of Stunt Rock. I just want to say, this is one of my all-time favorite movies. I love this movie so much. I'm really glad we're going to get to do this. And it is a definite party movie oh yeah it's it's, it's certainly oh, yeah. That. yeah yeah in fact it was a literal party movie here a few months ago you had it playing in the living room <laughs> oh yeah during the party and... i have hosted this movie at cult fiction underground for a night cool um yeah just i if you, you if you don't like this movie you're just not alive <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm looking forward i really am looking forward to revisiting the film because like i say the i, I heard a, i recently heard a snatch of the songs just the little bits and pieces of the music, and I was like, "Shit, I, 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 I would look forward to watching that again." What is that squeak? I hear it. It's the sound of Rod backpedaling. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I still don't think it's a particularly good film. I'm gonna. I, I'm, I'm, I'm deadly serious. My, my, my rating on that film was a, was a solid five out of ten, and I doubt it's gonna change. But you know, even a mediocre album sometimes is something that you, you is something you want to hear again just to remind yourself of what it sounded like. So. I just want to say, no, it's not a particularly good film. It's a particularly fucking awesome film. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. So next time the three of us crazy bastards are gathered around a table, we will be discussing Stunt Rock. You have been warned. So uh, I would just like to, once again, thank my cohorts in crime here for sitting down to talk about uh, The Candy Snatchers. And uh, next time, uh, we travel partially down under to do Stunt Rock. Oh, hey, kids. uh, Don't forget to check out my podcast, Spring Break Forever. Uh, Should be more uh, two minutes after, excuse me, five minutes after midnight. (laughs) And uh, I think we're finally bringing the Ramones podcast back if I remember to tell Sweeney that we're going to do it. (laughs) Hey, hey, get off your ass and start talking to people. It's been about three years. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) What is wrong with you? We're busy men. What 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 audience are you going to have that will return to you? Hey, well, the people who are still who <laughs> just still kept it. The same five dozen. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. Well, Mr. Hudson, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank uh, you, sir. And all I can say is that what I'm looking forward to most is that after Stunt Rock, I pick the next film. Thank God. No, it's true. I didn't think you were part of this rotation. Oh I yes, I am. Bobby. I picked Beyond Darkness. I thought Bobby picked that. I picked me on nope. darkness. That was that was him. Oh, I might drag us back to Filmarage, and I'm looking at a Filmarage movie poster right now on the wall. Oh my five foot uh, 
<laughs> in-game poster over here. Yes. <laughs> like Gladiator of the Future. Well, that gives me a little more time to think of what my next choice will be. But it has to be perfect. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hey, I thought this was a good choice. Because I've thought all my choices were good. So Yeah, you always do think that. You're always wrong. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once why again, you, why yeah, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks once again, folks, for listening to the show. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or anything otherwise, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com, or you can join us over on the Facebook page. People are actually leaving more comments over there here recently, which is kind of odd. Don't forget to uh, chime in next time, and we will talk to you again as soon as we can. Tell them we need to review Grunt the Wrestling Movie. That's right. Grunt, 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 grunt. I hate you fuckers. Show metal, but I know where.